The reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians, and Paul is urging the congregation there to be united in Christ. I have, it's 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, 10 to 25. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. This is the word of the Lord. So last Thursday or whatever the day was, uh, we sent out an email um, that announced the sermon title and the text and some brief announcements concerning what was coming up. And in that weekly email, uh, I mentioned um, in a sort of subtle way that we were breaking away from Hebrews to ask a question concerning the nature of faith. Even though we're in a series in Hebrews chapter 11, which is about faith. So, how many of you got that email? Okay. I always wondered if anybody got it. Um, <laughs> 
how many of you get it routinely and you actually read it? Okay. How many of you get it and decide whether or not you're coming to church based on the topic or the preacher? <laughs> I wonder that too. Um, we don't chart those kind of things. <laughs> it would be speculative at best. But I, I did announce it, so to speak, that we're not going to be in Hebrews, but we're going to use 1 Corinthians to inform something about Hebrews. And here it is. What I want to say about faith in this context is this. It's one thing to talk about faith or faith in God in a sort of generic kind of way, which we could lapse into when we look at Hebrews chapter 11, right? We could just say faith, 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 this kind of faith and that kind of faith. However, we want to remind ourselves of what Hebrews is all about, and thus link it to the notion of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Remember these words in Hebrews chapter 11? Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. That's kind of a generic statement about faith. But by the time you get to the end of the chapter, actually into chapter 12, and of course our chapter headings are arbitrary. We put them in there. They weren't in there originally, right? By the time you get to chapter 12, it's as though the author is saying to you, I want you to remember something about faith. I've given you all these biographies of faith. Now I want you to remember this. Without faith, it's impossible to believe God. Because he or we must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, if you're a critical reader, you're going to say to yourself, I'm still not sure what you mean by faith. I mean, I know at one level what you mean by faith, but what about the faith? What is the faith you're talking about? And in order to answer that question, you've got to remind yourself of what the writer of the book of Hebrews said from chapter 1 through chapter 10. From chapter 1 through chapter 10, the writer of the book of Hebrews says that the faith I'm talking about is not a nebulous belief. It's faith defined by believing in Jesus Christ. The risen, resurrected Son of God. Who, by the way, is the culmination of everything you've read about, if you have, in the Old Covenant. You may remember, if you've read Hebrews, there's long sections in Hebrews about the temple, about the sacrificial system, about all of those things. And the writer of the book of Hebrews is building all of that to chapter 11. And he's saying, faith is not just nebulous, faith is about Jesus Christ, the one who fulfilled the law and the prophets, the one who brought all this together. The faith I'm talking about is faith in our resurrected Lord. Now you might say to yourself, well, that's obvious. Maybe it is. But again, um, I misstated when I said chapter 12 uh, for 
the previous quote. It wasn't until chapter 12 that the author of the book of Hebrews reminds us of what it's all about. He says, I want you to fix your eyes, your faith eyes. Can I put that in there? I want you to fix your faith eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. I want you to remember what the faith is about. It's about Jesus. There are multiple times in the history of the church when authors like Paul, and of course many others, have felt it necessary to call Christian communities back to the basics. Instead of just talking about ideas, let's remember what the baseline is. We hear it a lot in the history of the church, and we hear it routinely in the epistles of Paul. And 1 Corinthians is one of those remarkable places where it's done. Because you've got a group of people in 1 Corinthians that are re- what, just terribly diverse and off the wall and kind of crazy, to be honest. If you look at what they believed, it was kind of nuts, some of them. And Paul is saying, not only are you a little bit crazy, but you're also very gifted. And as a matter of fact, it's possible because you have all these wonderful ideas concerning faith, concerning Jesus Christ, that you could be divided, that you could go this way and that way. As a matter of fact, it seems like it's happening, says Paul. I think some of you say I'm following Apollos and others Cephas and others Paul. God forbid, he says. Stop it already. We all follow Jesus Christ. So let's remember, says Paul, the basics. And the way Paul helps the, first, the people at Corinth to remember the basics could be summarized with one word, resurrection. What was foolishness? What was an insult? What was hard to understand? What makes no sense to those who are not being saved is the cornerstone of who we are. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So remembering the gospel, namely the resurrection of Jesus Christ, reminds us of our unity. What is the resurrection? Oh my, (laughs) it's everything. But just a couple of things that Paul affirmed not only in Corinth but other places. He affirmed repeatedly that the resurrection was the declaration or the validation of Christ as God. It wasn't just a resuscitation from the dead. It wasn't that God said, I like Jesus, he's a perfect man, I'll bring him back. It was the validation concerning his very nature, that he was fully God and fully man. The resurrection pronounces that. Think Philippians chapter 2, right? Philippians chapter 2, be united, right? If you have any fellowship, remember Jesus Christ, and be united in love. But also, he says, God, after the resurrection, validated, exalted him, declared him son of God. Not as though he was not son of God before, but it was a universal declaration and a historical epic that reminds us of the center of our faith. This resurrected Jesus is Lord over all. That's what Paul says. Don't forget it, Corinthians. 
When he emphasizes the resurrection, he's also talking about the ultimate defeat of sin and death. Think Romans. Paul says, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, sin and death have been defeated. Why? Because sin and death could not be defeated anyway other than this way. Because in the person of Jesus Christ, the very Son of God defeated death and sin because death and sin cannot conquer God. And in the person of Jesus Christ, who was utterly human just like us and utterly divine just like God, death entered into his body and because he was fully God, death could not hold his body. And thus the resurrection of the dead for us. Paul says, don't forget that. That's the center of your faith. He also reminds them in, in Romans chapter 8 and in other places that this resurrection is not just an existential reality. It's not just for you and me. This resurrection was a pronouncement concerning eternal life. Eternal life for you here and now and eternal life in the life to come. Because resurrection gives eternal life. And furthermore, resurrection means all things on the last day will be renewed. Everything will change. Everything that was created in terms of chaos because of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, all of it will be resurrected. Everything will be renewed. That's the power of the resurrection, Paul says. Don't forget, that's the heart of it. Don't get sidetracked. I, I, I wish I could just keep talking about the resurrection for the next hour. I would only scratch the surface. It is through faith in Jesus Christ's resurrection that redemption comes. It doesn't come any other way. You can't redeem yourself. You can't be good enough to make it there. It's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that redemption comes. There's something else that Paul makes very clear in Romans and Galatians especially. This resurrection faith that is yours when you believe you get no credit for it because it's a gift of grace. You didn't earn it. You didn't even have the ability to believe it except by the power of God himself. That, says Paul, is central. Don't forget it. For years, uh, the Christian church has done its best to summarize the essence of the faith. That was the motivation behind so many creeds, even though you might not be creedal. That was the motivation. It was the motivation behind multiple councils in the first five centuries of the church. It was to bring together what you might call a consensual orthodoxy. What I like to now call and others do. It's not unique to me. Paleo-orthodoxy. An ancient orthodoxy. The issues related to the essentials of faith that were crafted and honed in the first five centuries of the church, in the first seven ecumenical councils of the church. Paleo-Orthodoxy. 
At this place, at, at the Evangelical Community Church, I have frequently said, this place is about the paleo-orthodoxy that has been delivered to us by the saints. And our uniqueness is an evangelical ethos within that paleo-orthodoxy. It's a call to the new birth. It's a call to be born again. It's a call to spread the good news. Because if it's the good news of Jesus Christ, it is utterly unacceptable for us to keep it to ourselves. It's freedom for all. So our evangelical impulse and ethos tells us to focus that way. And that paleo-orthodox tradition, that tradition of what the saints have believed forever, <laughs> comes to bear in helping us understand what is our center. There are uh, certain songs, actually a lot of songs, that have done a good job of summarizing the essence of the faith. Um, you know, one of the creeds that we frequently use on Communion Sunday is the Apostles' Creed. Probably use that one more than any other. Sometimes we use the Nicene Creed and sometimes another. And we might quibble with certain parts of the language. But when we repeat the creed, we're basically saying, this is at the core of what we believe. This is what makes us Christian. One of the songs that's very recent, actually we're going to sing it at the end of the service, uh, it's a contemporary worship song, and it's uh, produced by Hillsong, for those of you who know anything about contemporary music. It's a summary of the essentials, actually the Apostle Creed in, in sort of different language. Actually, it goes like this. Let me read it for you, and we're going to sing it pretty soon. I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection, that we will rise again. For I believe in the name of Jesus. Our judge and our defender, that's Jesus Christ. Our judge and our defender suffered and crucified forgiveness is in you. I believe in eternal life. I believe that he descended into darkness and that you descended into darkness and you rose in glorious light forever seated high. I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in eternal life. I believe in the saints communion and in your holy church. I believe in the resurrection when Jesus comes again. For I believe in the name of Jesus. You see, for I believe in the name of Jesus, wonderful phrase. The words that precede it tell us what it means. All of those things, by the way, are in our statement of faith. You see it sometimes on the back of the bulletin. If you've gone through a membership class, you understand that it's important to us. 
Those are the things that unite us. And we could talk a lot longer about them. But at ECC, for those of you who might not be that familiar with us, this, this could be news to you. Within this unity, there's diversity. Actually, a lot of it. We agree to disagree about a lot of things. We always have. For instance, we agree to disagree concerning what the sovereignty of God really amounts to. We all believe in the sovereignty of God. How do we define it? Or, as you might expect, the issue of predestination and free will, right? This is a stereotype, but they're good. Presbyterians, traditionally, don't believe in free will. They believe in predestination. Now, I know if you're Presbyterian, you'll want to quibble. Just cool your jets a minute. Okay? Methodists, on the other hand, traditionally are devoted to the freedom of the will and and don't believe in predestination as defined by a Presbyterian. So who are we? Both. We choose to agree to disagree. As a matter of fact, on our church staff, there are people who have been trained at Asbury Theological Seminary. Methodist. Okay? People who have been trained at Covenant Theological Seminary, PCA, Presbyterian Church of America. People who have graduated from a Baptist Theological Seminary. And some crazy people who went to Yale and Princeton. We've got it all over the map. And we do our best as members of the pastoral staff to represent the diversity and to challenge one another with our ideas. Right? So for those of you who don't know, Dan is going to constantly push me towards the Presbyterian, predestinarian approach. And I'm going to say, wait a minute, Dan. Let's nuance this a little bit more. And Rob or somebody else is going to be on the other side of it, and they're going to say, Presbyterian? Predestination? Have you forgotten what the gospel is all about? You've got to choose Jesus. Yes and no. We embrace one another. Or take, for instance, the diversity that's represented in baptism. You saw it this morning. Matter of fact, there's, there's certain people, and you know who you are, and some of you, I know who you are, who just can't quite take it when we baptize an infant. It's just stirring you inside. You're just saying, I don't understand why we have to do this. Why do we have to agree to disagree about this subject? It's very important to me. Adults only ought to be baptized. Am I saying anything you've said in your head? There's others of you look at it. That's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. That child has been baptized in the Christian community of Christ followers, and someday he's going to confirm his own faith as an adult by saying, Jesus is my Lord. We agree to disagree. You know, unfortunately, in the history of the church, there's been some wars that have happened over this. Yep. 
People have been killed because of this stuff. The Anabaptists drowned, impaled on poles, burned at the stake. I'm not making this up, folks. Because they rebaptized people who had been baptized as infants. Seriously? Yes, seriously. I think it's wonderful, quite honestly, if you have a deep, settled conviction concerning baptism and you choose to be a part of a denomination that reinforces your perspective. I have nothing against denominations. But at this place, we agree to disagree. Things like the Lord's Supper. Uh, for those of you who are acutely aware of language, you may notice that when I introduce the Lord's Supper, I introduce it as a sacrament. Anybody ever notice that? If I was a Baptist, I would introduce it as an ordinance. I didn't make a mistake. I didn't stutter when I said sacrament. Because I think that's what it is. I think that whenever we celebrate communion, quite frankly, the presence of Christ is at that table in a special way. That's very Presbyterian. And if you didn't know that before, thought maybe you deserved to know it. And if you disagree, I think that's wonderful. So whenever you hear me say the word sacrament, just close your ears and say ordinance. <laughs> I'm okay with that, really, seriously. Another issue uh, that we agree to disagree around here about is eschatology, you know, end times and all that kind of stuff. Book of Revelation. I, I've been promising to preach a series on the book of Revelation, and every time I get it scheduled, the staff guys say, oh, don't think it's time for that yet, Bob. It's like, are we ever going to do this? I was like, I had it scheduled for the fall, and they talked me out of it again. No, they're just such weak-kneed people. These, No. I get it. And we, we have to choose the right time, right? Because that, that's one of those books that brings up all kinds of stuff. Some people are stridently premillennial and postmillennial and amillennial and, and the three factions fight and some people outside the circle say, I don't even get it to begin with. What are you fighting over? Is Jesus coming back? That's good enough for me. But it's not good enough for some people. And some denominations are based on those distinctions. Our church is not one of them. There's all kinds of things. Recently, something's emerged. Nate made an announcement about it. For years at ECC, we've had an unwritten and then later written policy concerning women on the Board of Elders. You know what's true? Is that for 40 years, people in the congregation have disagreed about that. 
And those who disagreed and thought we should accepted the reality that our current polity was that we should not. And they continued to worship together in unity. One thing that's consistent, at least since I've been here, by the way, I'll be here 19 years, August the 9th. Is that incredible or what? For those of you who, like me, feel like it was yesterday, man, you took a gamble on me. Thank you. I was young, immature, and experienced. And here we are together. But during the time, at least, that I've been here, we've made it clear over and over again that this issue is a matter of polity, right? It's not a matter of orthodoxy. It's not a matter of confession. We've tried to say we don't draw a line in the sand and say, you've got to be over here or over there or I can't be with you in fellowship. We've, we've not done that. And you know, according to what Nate just said a few minutes ago, we're actually going to have a discussion about this. And I'll be a part of the discussion, the presentation side of things. And uh, I'll, I'll do my best to describe my wonderfully nuanced approach to the subject matter. <laughs> and you know what? My pride uh, tells me I, I wish you would agree. But you know what my better judgment tells me? I hope you don't. I'm not trying to be extreme with that statement. I'm serious. I hope there's a whole bunch of you who do not agree with me. Because I think it's good for you, for me, and for us. This is not a matter of orthodoxy. And I hope that will be true. When it comes to diversity in a church, that issue or other issues, it creates a discomfort sometimes, doesn't it? No doubt about that. Over the last 19 years, I've watched people come through this church, parade through this church, and be inspired by something. Our worship service, maybe even the preaching, something. And they stick around and they're, they're excited about it. And then they begin to realize that a lot of people don't agree with them on a lot of stuff. And before long, they drift away. It happens over and over again. I want to say two things about that. The first is, I got to admit it bothers me. I want us to all stay together, okay? I'll just put that out there. But the second thing I want to say is that that's okay. You got to live with your convictions. And if your conviction says, I can't be a part of this kind of diversity, then you can't be. And I understand that. And I will love you, and I will pray for you as you leave. That's okay. However, it seems like to me that it's really difficult for us on any number of 
what you might call diverse issues. Well, to understand one another, right? So my, my admonition to us is on diverse issues, any of them, can we move towards understanding? In other words, are we willing to listen charitably? My favorite professor of all time was George Lindbeck at Yale Divinity School. I took every class I could take with him. He was a master. Even though he was in at Yale, which is definitely more left-leaning than, say, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He had a real appreciation for evangelicals, though he was not one. And man, did I have an appreciation for him. And he had a slogan he used to use that affected me profoundly. He used to tell us, you cannot think critically until you read charitably. What did he mean? Lovey-dovey? Smooches, hugs, and kisses? No. Most of the people we were reading were dead, for crying out loud. He was saying, if you don't agree with this author, the only way for you to truly critique him is to get inside the author's mind as much as you can. Not inside your own mind. You don't start there. You don't start by critiquing and criticizing the author. You get inside the, the author's mind. You try to figure out what it is that he's thinking and what motivates the direction of his thinking. And then, said Lindbeck, then you can think critically. Now, this is not an academic exercise, right? This living together in community. But it seems like to me the phrase still fits. In order for you to understand me and me to understand you and in order for me to critique your position and, your, and you critique mine, we have to enter into community in such a way that is charitable listening. Right? You know what charitable listening means? First, it means actually seeking understanding. Trying to understand the other. Charitable listening, in my opinion, also means being willing to be influenced by the other. It may not change your entire perspective, but if this is a brother or sister in Christ for whom Christ died and you love, listen carefully and be willing to be influenced. Charitable listening also acknowledges something. You, you won't be able to do charitable listening unless you acknowledge this. You acknowledge there are things that cloud your understanding. Whatever the issue, you realize that there are certain things that cloud your understanding, that block your complete understanding of that person. What are they? Oh, they could be many, couldn't they? Uh, one thing that might cloud your understanding of that person is pride. It's pure and simple. 
This is my position. I've decided it's right. And I will not be moved. So I can't listen. That kind of pride. Been there, done that. Okay? Second thing that might cloud your understanding of another person's position is fear. Overwhelming fear about what might happen if you open your heart to the other person. If you try to understand the other person deeply. If, in fact, the other person's position has an influence on you. Fearful about where it would lead. You know one of the best illustrations of this? I'll tell you where it is. It comes from loving your adult kids. I don't know how many times, I don't know how many times, my responses to my adult children have been based on fear. I'm worried that if I give an inch, they're going to take a mile. I know they're no longer under my control, but I want to have fatherly influence over them, and I don't want them to go down the wrong path, so I'm fearful, and so I allow my fear to block my understanding of where they're coming from. I do it all the time. I hope I'm getting better, but I know I do it. You notice I'm not applying that to small children. Just forget that. There's a lot to fear. There's something else that could block my understanding of the other. Quite frankly, it's anger. Because you push my button. And this is my issue, and I can't control myself when you do that. And so I will say things that are more extreme than I really mean, things that I regret in retrospect, and I will make things worse than they otherwise would be if I had just kept my trap shut. You know that? That kind of anger? I can block your thinking and your understanding of the other. Uh, let, let me give you another one that will disturb you more. Because all of you at some level understand fear and pride and anger. Tradition. Yeah. Could just be tradition that blocks your understanding of the other. Because you're comfortable with what you've become comfortable with. And it just makes you feel uncomfortable. So you'd rather stick with your tradition. Can you see Tevi standing on the roof? Tradition! Yeah? And Fiddler on the roof? That can block your understanding of the other. So, what do we do with our diversity? We seek to understand the other. Really seek to understand the other. Second, we accept the other, even if we don't understand. There are certain theological matters that I have no idea why you embrace. We can sit down and talk about them. I don't get it. I've been studying theology a long time, and some of them I still don't get but I'm going to accept you 
even if I don't understand it. Because it's not critical to my faith or yours. There's uh, many who disagree with you, and there's only one way for you to be complete, and that's to listen to them, to try to understand them, and to accept them. But there's a final thing that I think we should do. We should seek to understand. We should move towards acceptance when it comes to issues of diversity that are not about our unity. And we should embrace our mission together. This goes all the way back to 1 Corinthians. See, Paul was saying, don't get rattled by the other things. Remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember the core of what it's all about. So what is the mission of the church in this place, at this time, at Evangelical Community Church? What is the mission? Can we disagree about certain things and embrace the mission? I think we can. I think we do. I think we can continue to work on it. So when it comes to trying to understand, to accept, and to embrace the mission, ask these questions, will you, about any issue. Pick your issue. Ask these questions. Does this issue truly undermine or affect the mission of the church? Does it undermine or affect the mission of the church? Second, about this issue, whatever it is, Has anything essential to the gospel of Jesus Christ been denied? Ask that question. Third question. Ask this. Am I being asked to abandon my personal conviction about this matter? I hope that is not true at ECC. But ask the question. And the final question is, can I continue to fellowship with those who disagree? Can I embrace the mission of the church? So, just about the issue that everybody's thinking about right now because I raised it. I owe it to you. To look at you and tell you. I'm in favor of women being on the board of elders. I am not in favor of the board delivering a mandate that women must be on the board of elders. Why? Because I think that's for you to decide. In a unified diversity, you decide. And when you disagree with me, I will do what I've always done. I will seek to understand. I will try to accept. And I will ask questions about the mission of the church, this church that I love. I hope you can do the same, whatever the issue. 
If anybody wants my sermon notes, I'll give it to you. I don't expect you to agree, but maybe some of the questions will be helpful. Let's pray. Lord, you've been gracious to us uh, to come in the person of Jesus Christ, because that's at the core who we are. We believe that you came. We believe that you came because we needed you. We believe that you came because you were our only hope. We believe that you came because there was no other way to defeat death in the flesh. We believe that you came because you loved us. We believe this, Lord, to be good news. It's the gospel. So we pray, Lord, you'll help us to rally around the gospel. That you'll help us to understand other positions that we don't agree with. We pray you'll help us to accept others, whether we agree or not. And we pray you'll help us to unite around the mission of the church. And anything that deflects from that mission... Anything that contradicts it, anything that takes us away from the center, the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray you'll reveal it to us. Convict us and help us to change and to unite around the things that are essential. In the name of Christ our Lord we pray, amen.